You are now listening to the April 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Hezekiah is a name familiar to many of us for having been a good king in Judah and for having his life extended 15 years after praying to God. Starting today, we're going to share the story of Hezekiah, the 13th king of Judah. His records are written in 2 Kings chapter 18 to 20, in 2 Chronicles chapters 29 through 32. Hezekiah was the son of King Ahaz, the evilest king of all the kings of Judah. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. The Bible assesses Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 3 to 6. He did right in the sight of the Lord According to all that his father David had done, he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Bible tells us that Hezekiah trusted in God and did right in the sight of God. The Bible also tells us that there was no king in Judah like Hezekiah before or after him. The Bible compares him to King David in terms of how he clung to God and did not depart from him. He kept God's commandments. The Bible recalls all the acts of Hezekiah in detail in 2 Chronicles chapters 29 and 30. We will explore what kind of life he lived that the Bible commends him so much. Hezekiah first cleansed the house of God he abolished the evil policies that his father Ahaz had instituted. These policies destroyed the utensils in the house of God, closed down the gates to the house of God, promoted worshiping idols, and did evil in the sight of God. Hezekiah then proceeded to repair the house of God and started the work of reviving the true worship. Hezekiah gathered priests and Levites into the square and ordered them to remove unclean things from the house of the Lord and consecrated the house of God. Because priests at the time were actively taking part in the sacrifices to idols, Hezekiah did not use them, but instead he chose the Levites to take part in purifying the house of God. Hezekiah understood the reason for God's fury against Judah. His forefathers did evil in the sight of God. They had deserted him and turned their backs against the house of the Lord and closed the gate. They built altars for the sacrifice to idols and not to God of Israel. Hezekiah knew very well that these were detestable acts and the reasons God was furious against Judah and Jerusalem and why God left them to live in fear and ridicule of their neighboring nations. The Levites followed Hezekiah's instructions to cleanse the house of God. They assembled their brothers and consecrated themselves first and then started to undertake the work of cleansing the house of the Lord, as Hezekiah had ordered according to the word of God. They started from the outer court of the house of God to the inner part, 
all of the utensils of the house of God were brought back as well, which had been neglected due to the evil policies of Ahaz. After cleansing the house of God, Hezekiah started to restore the practice of worshiping God. Hezekiah started to worship as the Lord had instructed through the prophets, and together they sang with praises in the whole assembly. After cleansing the house of the Lord, he restored the worshiping in the temple of the Lord. The Bible tells us that all these were accomplished rather urgently over a short time span, and it was hard on the people. But Hezekiah and the people were happy because what they did was in accordance with what God had prepared for his people. Hezekiah did not stop there. He reinstituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover to remember God's deliverance of his people. Hezekiah reached out to the other tribes of Israel by sending letters to Israel, Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This was in an effort to unite God's people as one through one worship. Hezekiah had faith in God's promise that if the people turn back to God and worship him, God would show his face again and take back the fury against Judah and the people. Nonetheless, among those who received Hezekiah's letters, Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, many did not consecrate themselves, but instead ridiculed and laughed at those that were turning back to God. They had forgotten about their God and persisted in doing evil in the sight of God, despite having witnessed the wrath of God. Yet many did turn back to God and came before him with humble hearts. God's hand moved the heart of the people of Judah, and they carried out the orders from the king and other leaders in one heart, trusting that their orders were in accordance with the word of God. Hezekiah carried out the reform so that not only he, but all Judah and the rest of God's people would repent and turn back to God. This was indeed a wonderful testimony. We will continue to share the story next time to see how Hezekiah and the people of Judah acted in the sight of God afterwards. This concludes today's episode from Story of Kings. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is What About Healing? Part 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Now let's open our Bibles to the book of James. Uh, We were looking at chapter 5. The context of the last message was James was talking about how people can be steadfast, immovable during times of trial, how we can be patient. And he said, look, you can have the same patience that the prophets had when they were going through trials. You can have the same patience that Job had, went through that unbelievable time of testing. Now, how can we have that kind of patience? Well, this next section of James tells us how we can have that kind of patience, and it's through prayer. So let's look at James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him what? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him what? Sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let they pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So it's clear that uh, prayer is the topic of these verses because it occurs either as a verb or a noun in every single verse. Prayer, pray, prayer. Now, I want us to look at verse 13. Let's start at the first part of verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, something surprised me, gang, when I was looking at that word suffering. Because it's, it's with sickness, I thought, oh, somebody's suffering, they're sick, you know, they got something wrong with them. Is that what you've kind of been thinking? That's not what the word is referring to. Is anybody suffering? isn't talking so much about sickness as it is talking about going through hard times, going through difficult times, facing obstacles of some kind. So he says, if you're facing obstacles, if you're going through difficult times, what do we need to do? What does he say? Let him pray. Let him pray. Now, the opposite part of that would be, is anybody cheerful, he says, in the latter part of this. Let him sing praise. Boy, that's the opposite of suffering. Are you cheerful? The word cheerful, I don't use that word a lot. It could be joyful. Or uh, somebody said it could mean to be in fine spirits. Is anybody in fine spirits? Is anybody cheerful? Life's going your way. Let him sing praise. See, both are acknowledging God. You're in difficult times. You acknowledge God and you ask him, God, I need your help. When you're in cheerful times, good times, everything's going your way, you acknowledge God because you sing praise to God. Amen? So God is always kept in view. Suffering, times of cheer, listen to this. That covers about all of life, doesn't it? One end to the other and everything in between. So when you think about it, you realize that we have a God for all the circumstances of our lives. Amen? It's important for us to keep God in view in our difficult days, in our joy-filled days as well. It's easy to get a bad attitude towards God when things aren't going your way. Got this attitude. For some believers, when things aren't going well, they step back from God. They stop exercising the Christian uh, virtues. They, They stop exercising the disciplines of the Christian life. They're not in the Bible. They're not in Bible study. They're not praying anymore. They're not in fellowship with other believers. They're stepping back from God, not doing those things anymore. That's not what you want to do, gang, when you are facing hard times The other thing to do is you step in and you press into the Lord. You ought to be closer to the Lord in hard times than you've ever been before. You press in. You don't step away. That's craziness. You press in to God. 
For some of us, we ought to be closest to Jesus than we've ever been in our entire lives right now, okay? And if you're not, something's up. You need to press in. Don't let it pull you away. And then in joyful times, you know, there's a danger too, because in times of joy, you could, you could have the, uh, uh, you could begin to marginalize God. You could begin to sideline God. You know, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm living life pretty much by myself. Things are going good. I don't like this about me. I don't like it that I press into God more when things are tough than when I press into God when things are good. And I'm, I'm admitting this. It's not what I want to do. As I've been looking at this, the Lord's convicted me. You know, I would like to be able to say, I'm as, I'm as pressed into God now when things are good as I'm as pressed into God now when things are bad. I want that consistently. You guys want that too, right? I want to be consistent that way because I need God every hour. Like the hymn says, I need thee every hour, every hour I need thee. There's not a moment I don't need the Lord, good time or bad time. And to just stay a minute talking about, you know, the hard times, the times when we're facing obstacles, I just want to stay there. It says, let him pray. And I think about the example of Jesus. When Jesus was agonizing in the garden, perhaps the time when the enemy attacked him the greatest and the strongest. I mean, he is praying and his sweat is blood. He's sweating blood. What does he do? The record says that Jesus prayed more earnestly. He was already praying in the garden, right? Praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was betrayed. But it's like the enemy came upon him in power and force. What did Jesus do? He prayed more earnestly. Perhaps it's time for you to pray more earnestly. Our power is not in the strength of flesh. It's not... In the power of man, our strength is in the Lord. The power of his might, the Bible says. Someone has said, prayer may not remove the affliction, but it most certainly can transform it. Now, we've come to a section of James that has always interested Christians and has been a source of real comfort and controversy. And that's this passage that we're looking at. In this section, James was writing about prayer for the sick. And before I exposit the meaning of the passage, what I want to do is tell you what it doesn't mean, okay? Next week, we'll look at what does this mean. This is because, let's look at what this doesn't mean because this passage is misinterpreted so often. And it's because people come to it with really big misconceptions about God and themselves, okay? When you were reading about God healing the sick, there are questions that come up that need to be answered. You know, sometimes you you need to ask questions, but you really don't want to know the answer to. It's like, you know, like, uh, how soon do you want this done? You really don't want the answer to that, do you? Or how much is this going to cost? Do you really want that answer? Or how do you use this iron? Don't tell me. I'd rather not know. That's info I don't want to know. But you need to ask the question. But there's an important question that needs to be asked, and it needs answers, and that is this. Does God really heal today? That's the question. Does God really heal today? And if you say, yes, he does, Then another question is asked that needs to be answered, and that is, well, then why doesn't God heal everyone? If God heals today, yeah, he does. Then why doesn't God heal everyone? Maybe you're thinking, why doesn't God heal my friend or my family member? Or it's more personal. You say, God, why don't you heal me? 
When God doesn't heal or doesn't heal right away, a lot of questions come up. And I've had questions asked me through the years. I have the advantage now of hindsight. I can look back. I can bring things uh, and recall things. And I want to share with you just a few questions that have come up that are misconceptions about healing. And the first one is this. People say, well, uh, I, I'm not being healed. Is it because I don't have enough faith? Always comes up when we talk about healing. And, and that's because maybe you have been told, maybe by a Christian friend, that, well, if you only had enough faith, you'd be healed. Isn't it true that I have to have faith to be healed? Well, it's true. Listen, it's true that faith does please God and God blesses faith, but healing is not an award for having a lot of faith. It's not blue ribbon faith that gets you healed. You know, some people, they're first place in faith, they got the blue ribbon, some second, third place, or third place, you know, you might, you probably won't be healed. Healing is not an award. Somebody say amen. amen. Healing is a gift of God's grace. It's not given to the most faith-filled people. It's God's grace. No one inherently deserves to be healed. Would you agree with me? When God heals somebody, he's not giving us merit badges for faith. He's exercising his grace. When you're sick, and I have such compassion because I've talked to you. When you're sick, the last thing you need is somebody telling you, if you only had enough faith, you'd be healed. Has anybody, maybe it wasn't because you're sick, but has anybody ever heard somebody say something like this? Could I see, you ever heard somebody say something like this? Maybe not to you. I've had people say that to me. I've had people say that to my wife who suffered for 30 plus years, the terrible, painful disease. And they'll tell her, well, if you never, I remember saying, I just want to jump up. And if you only had enough faith, Leslie, you'd be healed. I'm saying, you have no idea. This woman is the most faith-filled person you will ever meet. How dare you say something like that? You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, it's all about faith, Pastor Mark, faith. I say, really? I thought it was all about Jesus. There's no power in faith by itself. No power in faith by itself. Because, you know, people have faith in themselves. People have faith in idols. People have faith in something. You know what? There's no power in faith by itself. I had a professor in college who he kept saying faith's virtue is in its object in other words where your place faith is placed is what makes your faith valuable the virtue of our faith what makes it active is that it is placed where in jesus christ Faith by itself is powerless. But when you look at the biblical record, hey, you're going to see there are times when people were healed and their faith is mentioned. That happens a lot through the New Testament. But there are other many occasions when people are healed and it has nothing to do with their faith. It's simply a gracious gift of God. And hear anything about faith. It's a gift of God. I just want to say this, follow me. It's, it's kind of a crazy sentence, but just follow me. Why is it that the people who say that you don't have enough faith ever think that maybe the problem is that their prayers for you aren't faith-filled enough? You follow me? Remember, healing is not an award. Text like Numbers 14, 18. If you want to look there, you can see it. You don't have to, but Numbers 14, 18. There are passages that will be used to uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So they'll be used to support this teaching. Numbers 14, 18. Now, the first half of this is like amazing. 
I was like highlighting, underline, 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 and then it's like, stop. You'll see what I mean. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Amen? Forgiving iniquity and transgression. Amen. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. That's where my highlighter stopped. That verse, maybe a few others, is used to prove, you see, the sins of the fathers and the fathers. That will be visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, let's go back over some stuff we know. First of all, we know that if you're going to study the Bible, you need to take it in its context. Amen. You guys know that. A text with out of context, they see as a, a pretext for a proof text. You know, you can take any verse in the Bible and try to prove something with one verse, and you can say, well, it's in the Bible. Yeah. But what's the context? So you always read above. You always read below. And then you always interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. Always. So who is this written to? To Jews, to Israel. I'm not a Jew. You're not Israel. We're the church. Different, completely. Are you sacrificing lambs? No. This is talking to Israel under the old covenant. It has nothing to do with you. There are parts of the Bible. Now, I'm hesitating in saying this because there are two, two ways this could go wrong. I'm going to say this, but I'm quickly and I don't want to contextualize it. There are some parts of the Bible that don't apply to you. Now, whoa, 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 stay with me. I said that one time, and, and then I, I, somebody put on Facebook, I uh, know a pastor who doesn't believe all the Bible is, is true. That's not where I'm coming from. Hold it. Some of you say, okay, then whatever I don't like doesn't apply to me. <laughs> no, I'm talking like this. The book of Leviticus is all about is the, the, the Jewish priesthood, sacrifices, and how you cut things up, and what you wear, and how you weave this and wear that, and how you put up the sacred tent, and uh, it has nothing to do with you. You can look back on it, you can see little pictures of Jesus through there, but you don't have to come through the blood. You don't have to do that kind of stuff, because that's the old covenant. And the last time I checked things, we're in a new covenant, amen? How do I know that? Well, for one thing, at the Last Supper, Jesus lifted the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed to take away your sins. If you're not in the new covenant, you're in trouble, you're in the trouble. That is not for you. No believer in Jesus Christ can ever experience that. You say, well, uh, no. Okay, let's just, let's clear the discussion here. Let's go to the book of Galatians. There's no, I don't, I shouldn't even say anymore. I should just read this verse. There were really Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. Boom, drop the mic. I mean, that's the end of argument, right? <laughs> Am I under curse? I'm a generational curse. Christ, the New Living Translation says, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took himself upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Somebody say Amen. <laughs> No curse for you. No curse for you. Another question that has come up, and maybe I see this as the most serious of all. And this is the question, well, I'm not being healed, so God must be punishing me. God must be punishing me. The heart of this question involves shame and not understanding the grace of God. There's something you did in your past 
something you're struggling with right now. You know, the thing about Christians, you're a real Christian. You don't just sit and sin and like it. You hate it. And you might, you might be mess, it might mess you up over and over and over again. But if you could push a button, you wouldn't want to be in it anymore, right? But there's something you did. And you live in dread, you live in shame, and you're waiting for the foot to fall. And so sickness comes on you or someone you love, and you think, oh, this, I'm getting what I deserve. You could have had an abortion. And now you're a Christian. You're thinking, you realize, oh, God, what did I do? So now you have this child. And the child gets sick, and you're thinking, oh, God, oh, God, please, please. Or you get sick, oh, God, I know what I did. I'm so, wait a minute. God will not have a relationship with you except by grace. God chooses the basis and the rules by which he decides I'll have a relationship with you. And he will not have a relationship with you by you deciding, oh, I'm going to be better and better by you growing up and being more mature. God says, I refuse to have a relationship with you on that basis. I will not. Don't even try to come to me that way. The, God's making the rules up. God is saying, I will not have a relationship with you except by grace, by my unmerited favor. That's how we have a relationship together. So when you mess up, when you do the wrong thing, you have not changed in relationship with me because that's the rule. Come on. You hear that? Yeah. That's the rule. So if you think your relationship with God has changed, well, God doesn't. Yes, you repent of your sin. Yes, you ask for forgiveness. Yes, you want to stay in a tight, you know, fellowship with God, like you would a spouse. You know, if you don't make things right, then there's this things aren't right. Course, but God would never sever a relationship with you, and God never, listen to me, ever wants you to live in shame. Shame is a result of not understanding the grace of God or understanding the grace of God like a lot of you do, but not applying it to yourself. You would be the first one to tell someone who did something that you're struggling with and have shame about, you would be the first thing to tell them, hey, God has forgiven you, living grace. You would be the first one to say that. You would. But when it comes to you, for some reason, you're the special case. You're the one this doesn't apply to. God has a different plan for you. No, the good news is you can be released from shame. Released from shame. Claiming the blood of Jesus, you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. The one who keeps pointing out your sin is not Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's Satan, the liar, the deceiver. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He doesn't want you living shame free. So he'll always bring something up. There'll always be something put on the screen. Always some memory come up, steal your joy at just the, the worst moment. You're in the middle of something, and then poof, your joy is gone. You, you, you know what? That is not God. That's not the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit never shames. Holy Spirit never condemns. The Holy Spirit never points fingers. The Holy Spirit never shouts at you. The Holy Spirit never takes you by the neck and holds you against the wall. Holy Spirit never does anything like that. What the Holy Spirit does is he speaks quietly. Never heard the Holy Spirit yell at anybody. The Bible says it's still quiet voice. He comes alongside and you know, I can, I can, I can yell at Jeff or I can go up and I can whisper in Jeff's ear, which do you think's going to get through to Jeff the best way? For him, it's going to be to say, Hey, Jeff. The Holy Spirit, he never condemns. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't punish. God doesn't punish his children. Punishment involves condemnation, which involves usually a sentence, which can involve jail time or some big fine or something. No, God doesn't condemn his children. God will convict his children, and God will discipline his children. But discipline isn't punishment. Discipline is the way you correct and teach somebody, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does, is he corrects us, and he comforts us, and he teaches us. Am I being punished? Because I'm sick and I haven't been healed. My child is sick and hasn't been healed. God won't have a relationship with you except on the basis of grace. And we keep wanting to put ourselves in the middle and put the spotlight on us. The spotlight is on God's grace. Amen? Remember, God doesn't give you what you deserve. I have to read this to you. It's from Psalm 103. Psalm 103 talks about the grace and the forgiveness and the love and relationship that God has with us. Reading this from the New Living Translation. He does not punish us for all our sins. Can you say amen to that? He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. I just love it. I'm going to say it again. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For, why? His unfailing love towards those who revere him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. God's loving kindness for you, you revere him, his loving kindness for you is higher than the infinity above you. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who revere him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Here's a little insight in how I prepare my messages. I prepare my messages, you know, I take the text, I think I'm praying, and I always think, who am I talking to? I might have in mind a certain group of people or kind of person at times. Uh, Maybe there's times when I think, oh, this is somebody who doesn't know Jesus and they're skeptical. And, you know, I'll kind of... 10 things that way. I just, you know, Lord, give me insight. Who am I talking to? Other times, like today, I just, it's a general, I feel like all the church, the Holy Spirit speaking to all of us in, in, a, in a good way. But at the end of this, I was put, tying it all together. It was like, okay, I don't hear voices, but the impression from the Lord was, hey, I have, I have three verses for someone. And the Lord gave me three verses, and one or all of them are for someone, you personally. Now, I know you could say, ah, you know, of course, he can say that, and it could be anybody, but really trust me, this is going to go like an arrow into the heart of somebody. It might be exactly what you need, but these these three verses, the, the first verse is, from Psalm 1811, he shrouded himself, God shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dark rain clouds. What? No, he shrouded himself with darkness, veiling himself in dark rain clouds. Look, this is what this means. God is in the dark for some of you. You are thinking, I cannot see God. God sometimes does shroud himself in darkness, but God is still there. And all you see are the gray clouds. You can't see God. He is there. Though he seems shrouded in darkness, you need to hear that. 
The second passage God gave me, and, and it's, for, it's for someone specifically here, is this. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant? In other words, who is there here who faithfully is following God? If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. You follow Jesus. You love the Lord with all your heart. And yet you are walking in darkness without a ray of hope, the Bible says. If that's you, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. You hear that? Trust in the Lord and rely on your God. And this, I feel, is for a big, broader group of us. It's Psalm 68, verse 19, which says, Praise the Lord. Praise God, our Savior. For each day, he carries us in his arms. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God, our Savior. For each day, he carries us in his arms. Every single day. I thank you, Lord, that you're carrying me. I don't have to carry myself. I don't have to do this whole thing myself. I can cast my burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain me every day. Praise the Lord. Praise God, our Savior, for each day he carries us in his arms. If you're walking in darkness and you see no light, trust and rely on God. God may seem shrouded in the darkness right now, but listen, he's there. He's saying, I'm there, kid. You trust me. Oh, we've got to thank him. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have revealed to us. Thank you for your word. It just, it comes right into our heart. It's, it's always satisfying. It's always relevant. It's always meeting our needs. It's just a supernatural thing. Thank you for the ministry that we have as, as we are hearing these words. And I'm praying that they would seek, sink deep and remain in Jesus' name. And everybody said a great big amen. Thank God for his word. It's so good.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart. Hello, listeners. This is Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart, where we reflect upon our prayers by looking at prayers in the Bible. Last time, during our first session, we shared about the reason and purpose of learning about prayers after God's heart. The duration of prayer is important, but more than that, the direction and standard of prayer is more important. As I reflect upon my own spiritual life, I realize that even though I came to know Jesus in my mid-twenties and began my spiritual life, I began praying long before then. What kind of prayer was it? When I was young, I prayed to Santa Claus so I could get presents. Also, I occasionally went to the temple with my parents and prayed before Buddha to let us live well. Also, I went to a Catholic church with my friend and bowed my head and prayed before the Virgin Mary. What do you think? Although it hasn't been too long since I started my spiritual walk, I've been praying since I was young, right? I think I could hear you say, how can you call that a life of prayer? That's right. The direction of my past prayers was wrong. The reason the direction was wrong was because the motive and purpose were wrong. The one I was praying to differed according to what I was asking for. Therefore, my prayer was not right. After the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian theologian was Augustine. He said, Humans pursue happiness and obsess over what they believe brings happiness. I agree with what he said. I wanted to receive a present on Christmas, so I prayed to Santa. I pray before an image of a god whenever I needed something. What Augustine said was right. Humans obsess on what they believe will bring happiness. If so, do we as Christians pray to God for the same reason? Do we obsess over Him because we believe that He will bring us happiness? I believe that Augustine is describing people's mentality for searching the world to find happiness. Therefore, I think that Augustine is describing worldly people. If so, we Christians who are God's children should have a different reason for praying to God than the world. We shouldn't pray because we are obsessed about believing that it will bring happiness. Today, I want us to think about Jehoshaphat's prayer from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I'll read 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. After the age of Solomon, Israel was divided into southern Judah and northern Israel. Jehoshaphat was the seventh king of southern Judah. He followed after his father and acted honestly in the Lord's sight. While he was ruling, it seemed like southern Judah was powerful, but chapter 20 verse 1 says, After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Maonites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Danger was facing southern Judah and Jehoshaphat. At that time, the size of the united army of the people of Moab, Ammon, and Meun was so large, it didn't even compare to the smaller southern Judah's army. As the king of southern Judah, he was probably very fearful since the large-sized united army was about to attack him. 
In the midst of his fear, the first thing Jehoshaphat did was turn his face towards the Lord to seek and call upon him. Why did he pray to God in this fearful and difficult situation instead of requesting support from another nation or asking the army commander and elders about their opinions of what they should do? The reason was that Jehoshaphat clearly knew who God was. When we look at Jehoshaphat's prayer, he first says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, and calls upon the Lord. Then he says, God who is in heaven, and you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Then he confesses that power and might are in your hands. That's right. Jehoshaphat knew who God was, so in this situation, he didn't seek after people, but after the Lord God of Israel. We also know that God is sovereign over the world, and He is also the Creator and Ruler. We know that all might and power is in the Lord's hands. However, when we are faced with difficulty, most of us first seek help from elsewhere. There are many instances where we turn to a certain person or system or seek several methods. What is the difference between us and Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat truly knew who God was and had faith in Him. God was with His people since the time of their ancestor Abraham. God protected their ancestors since leaving Egypt and is still leading His people now. Because of His faith in God, He first sought after God in the midst of fear and difficulty. Jehoshaphat knew that everything that happened in life was in God's hands, so he called upon God's name. Jehoshaphat prayed in faith knowing who God is. How was his prayer answered? 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15 says, This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. After proclaiming this, God gave them victory against the incomparable united army. How well do you know God to whom you are praying? Do you know who He is? Do you know His character? Do you know the works He has done? Do you know all these things as you pray? How about if you start your prayer by calling on God whom you have personally experienced with faith? Living God, the Lord of my life, God who calls, leads, and protects, my God who feeds, clothes, and fills my needs until now. How is it? When you meditate one by one about everything God has done in your life and call on the Lord as you pray, then you will be able to pray in faith towards Him. I'll see you next week from Prayers After God's Own Heart.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.